Doug Henwood, let's start with the most obvious, though some of the left might say least important question, and we'll get on to why they argue that shortly, which is who do you think is most likely to win Tuesday's presidential election? The famous statistician Nate Silver has Joe Biden's prospect of victory at 89%, and all the national polls indicate a Biden victory. The inevitable question lingers, however, can Trump do it again? Can he defy all predictions and somehow secure a second term? Well, of course he can. Uh, and uh, part of the reason is that uh, you know, people are maybe somewhat shy about telling pollsters they want to vote for Trump. I think that's probably less true now than it was uh, four years ago. Uh, but then it's also the crazy structure of the American electoral system. So Biden could, you know, in the national polls, he's ahead by seven or ten points. But Trump could squeak out state victories that would give him once again the electoral college victory that he got, like he got in, in 2016. Hillary Clinton got almost three million more votes than he did, but he won because of our crazy state system. So you now, like we've just seen the last few days, like all these, what's happening in Pinellas County, Florida? Like who really cares what is happening in this, some goddamn county in Florida? But that is the way our electoral system works. So we have to worry about every state. So uh, it's Florida, Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, all these states. Real, uh, the, the fate of the election really hangs in what happens in all these states, even though. It's quite possible that Biden could win by 10, 10 million votes. But if those votes are concentrated in places like New York and California, then uh, he might lose the Electoral College. So this insane relic of uh, the slaveholders uh, in the 18th century um, still determines um, our elections. Uh, so in, the last, uh, in 2000 and 2016, uh, we had a minority president win. Uh, and it could happen again. The Democrats famously neglected, or many commentators argued, that they neglected the so-called flyover states in 2016 with very little on-the-ground campaigning in states like uh, Michigan and uh, Iowa. Has there been any change uh, in, in that respect, Doug? Have the Democrats in, in any way uh, learned their lessons of, of ignoring those, those so-called flyover states, which uh, they took for granted in 2016 and ended up uh, really biting them on the backside? Yeah, well, um, the Hillary campaign was driven by um, all these metrics and models and all these smart young men who thought they knew better, and all the campaign veterans say you're really screwing up by not campaigning in Michigan or Wisconsin. Uh, but the problem this time is that COVID has really inhibited uh, in-person campaigning. So I think Biden is certainly advertising those states. You know, he's done remote appearances uh, in these states. They've paid attention to it um, I think he um, he doesn't alienate uh, a lot of like uh, sort of working class white people the way Hillary did. She comes off as this very uh, somebody said she she has the personality of your boss, and uh, a lot of people just didn't like that about her. She's not like that. Uh, you could say there's sexism involved, certainly is, but there's also something about uh, her personality that put people off, and that is just not a factor with Biden because he's just you know regular Joe from Scranton, Pennsylvania. Um, so I don't think that is quite the factor that it was this time. But on the other hand, a lot of voters in those states just don't like Democrats. Uh, they, uh, the, the whole Trump appeal to them is uh, one of ignorance and xenophobia and uh, kind of verbal and even physical violence that uh, appeals to a certain subset of the public. Uh, and um, while uh, Biden hasn't done anything like call those people deplorables the way Hillary does, um, it's kind of hard to win folks over 
to uh, things like the Green New Deal. Uh, they're just not interested in that sort of thing. They, uh, they like the tough guy, macho thing. There's been a record number of pre-poll and postal votes cast ahead of this election, largely because of the conditions brought about by the COVID-19 pandemic. The New York Times reports Texas and Hawaii have already exceeded their 2016 voter turnout before Election Day, while 10 other states have surpassed 80% of their last turnout. What does this mean for counting and determining the result on election night itself? Is it inevitable, as many commentators have suggested, that we won't see a result declared for days, potentially even weeks? That's quite possible. We just don't know. We've never seen anything like this. Um, and every state has a different system. That's part of the craziness of American voting. You know, it's not like most countries have a national election system where the results can be known in two hours you know, or something like that. Even in Canada, you know, they, um, they, they don't have an elect- electronic system. It's all counted by hand, but it's done in a matter of hours. Here, uh, you know, it's just every state has a different system. We could take my state, New York, could take a week to count all the ballots. Um, we just don't know what it's going to look like. And it's quite possible that a different set of people will vote in person on election day. So the immediate count that we'll get will be, be rather different from the final count. Uh, there's some evidence that uh, Democratic leaning areas and demographics were voting more heavily in the early voting, uh, which could give what looks like a Trump victory uh, on election night that could get reversed a few days later. He would, of course, take advantage of that and declare any uh, uh, count that came in after the fact is, is fake uh, and fraudulent. And, uh, you know, just we just don't know what he would do. But it, well, we also have to worry about um, his supporters coming, showing up with automatic weapons at polling places. It's, um, they, this weekend, uh, they've been having these... Uh, uh, Trump uh, caravans of people in giant SUVs uh, blocking traffic and threatening people. Uh, uh, the other day, the, uh, uh, some people in Texas drove, uh, surrounded the Biden campaign bus and, and tried to drive it off the road. It was just, it, it's, it's really a, it's just a completely insane situation here. I, I, you know, we've all gone completely mad under four years of Trump, and uh, it's really coming to a head now. Many liberal commentators, pundits, journalists, pollsters, campaigners and so on, and indeed many ordinary Democrats supporting Americans generally have, and you've just <laughs> hinted at it in terms of the madness that's been induced by the last four years, have in, in some respects suffered in the last four years from what's been called, whether unfairly or otherwise, Trump derangement syndrome, which can be summarised as an irrational fear of Trump and what he represents or undue alarmism at just how bad his government has been or could become. Arguably, the latest manifestation of this is the widespread belief that Trump won't accept the result of the election no matter what, that he will stay in office even by means of a coup d'etat if necessary, notwithstanding that there are genuine and understandable fears of what Trump has represented and indeed what he's done in the last four years. Are these fears really realistic? Is there an element of alarmism to them? Or is it really possible, do you think, that Trump could become effectively the unelected dictator of the United States? Well, I think, you know, a coup d'etat in the literal sense seems impossible. He doesn't have the support of the military. The military wouldn't go along with this. He does have deep support among the police, however. Police unions have all endorsed him. Um, and uh, so God knows what that means. So the, and a lot of the police are closely allied with uh, armed right-wing movements. So we don't know what that's going to do. Um, I, you know, there, there is, I guess... There is some degree of the Trump derangement syndrome, which probably exaggerates the threat. He's not Hitler. I mean, if we look back at 
Hitler, um, within two weeks of taking office, uh, Hitler had thrown a, a bunch of people in jail and shot a bunch of other people. And within two months, uh, the, uh, the German parliament had passed the Enabling Act, which gave him absolute power. So you know, we haven't had anything like that. But um, the combination of uh, his uh, abuse of federal power, uh, the, the Republican dominance of the, of, the, of the judicial system now, uh, and the very strong likelihood that the Republicans are going to challenge ballots in every state, everywhere, um, could lead to a whole lot of um, just confusion, litigation, uh, possibly excluded ballots. Uh, there's a whole lot of voter suppression going on, intimidation. Um, Republican states have made it much harder to vote, uh, especially for people who live in Democratic areas, uh, minorities, much harder for minorities to vote. So they're doing their best, using every legal means to make it harder for Democrats to vote and to make it easier for Republicans to vote. Uh, and then the litigation that could ensue from, from all this confusion, we just don't know what's going to happen. And it's quite possible he's going to do everything he could to discredit the result, even if he, you know, it does look like there's a clean uh, uh, decision against him. Uh, he may declare it fraudulent. We just don't know what he's going to do. He's completely unpredictable. I mean, there was a story in the New York Times the other day uh, by Ron Susskind, uh, a veteran investigative reporter, uh, who interviewed a bunch of people around him, and they're all saying, yeah, he could do anything. We just don't know. He's completely unpredictable, and uh, he's um, vain and uh, doesn't want to be a loser, so we just don't know what he will do. It's, it, it, you know, and his absolute indifference to bourgeois norms, proceduralism, um, all the, the things that did keep a degree of, of competence in the, in the American governance system, you know, it's just, he's destroyed all that. I mean, he's destroyed the Centers for Disease Control. He's destroyed so much of the, uh, uh, the, the, the expert infrastructure of the government, and he's trying to turn it more and more into um, a cult of personality around him. No competent or sane person wants to work for him at this point, so he's just surrounded himself with a bunch of yes-men and, and morons. So it's, 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 it's really, really grim. And I know it's easy to think that we're getting carried away with anxiety, but um, four years of this stuff have driven a lot of us pretty crazy, and I really just can't stand it. If we have four more years of him, I really just don't know what I'm going to do. But, uh, I don't know. It would be nice to move to Melbourne or something. <laughs> sure. You're welcome here any time, Doug. Now, I mentioned at the start of the interview that there are some sections of the left, particularly the far left, who historically have argued US elections are a matter of a pox on both their houses, that the Democrats and Republicans represent different wings of the US ruling class and in no way, shape or form embody the interests of ordinary American voters. What really matters is continuing to build social movements like Black Lives Matter. It's a very familiar argument that anyone who's ever been involved in left-wing circles would be familiar with. There's no question, however, that it's a much harder argument to carry uh, because of the unique status of uh, Donald Trump, and yet these debates continue as they always, always have done. What's your particular take on this seemingly interminable debate? Well, I, I think it's absolutely imperative to keep the social movements going. Um, there's just no doubt about it. Black Lives Matter. I'm a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. We're very active uh, in particularly in local politics, electing people to state legislatures and city councils and things like that. And we're going to keep doing that. Uh, and we've had a pretty good uh, record um, in doing that. But um, Trump is really so extraordinary. And the, um, the possibilities, you know, Biden is no, uh, there's nothing great about him. There's nothing inspiring about him. Uh, he's really kind of dim and uh, 
kind of conservative. But he has said um, he's not endorsed a Green New Deal explicitly, but he is talking very seriously about climate change. He's talking seriously about infrastructure investment program. Uh, I know a couple of his economic advisors personally uh, from <laughs> fellow um, radical past. Um, they, they, they've moved on to the mainstream, but they're still they, they're good people with uh, pretty good politics. So the, the possibility of influencing Biden in a better direction is certainly you know um, makes it, um, makes it more likely that uh, things would be better under under a Biden administration under Trump. I mean, it would not be uh, the introduction of a Nordic-style welfare state or anything like that, but it would be a step in the right direction, and I think it would be much easier to pressure uh, a Democratic president, uh, especially if he had the Senate uh, with, a, with a Democratic majority. That would make... A somewhat different political terrain. It's a better um, it's a better enemy to have. Let me put it that way than than Trump, who is just nothing but destructive and nihilistic and terrifying. Finally, Doug Henwood, it seems almost a redundant question, given the current situation is so wildly chaotic and unpredictable by its very nature. But how do you see things unfolding post election? There's been talk of far right militias mobilising at polling stations to prevent people from voting. There's speculation there will indeed be a prolonged fight over the result in the Supreme Court, and some commentators have even. Suggested Suggested that irrespective of the result, America is entering its final phase of imperial decline and everything that that uh, entails, and that one manifestation of this will be even a low-level civil war, uh, an American version of Italy's years of lead from the 1970s. In summary, protracted, deadly street clashes between the far left and far right, deep economic crisis and ongoing political malaise is the fate that many are predicting for the United States. Well, you know, I spent the summer of 1976 in Italy, uh, and it was really nice. So, <laughs> I would a little bit of that. Sure, but, sure. Uh, I, I would say uh, um, that, that these scenarios are not outlandish. Uh, I, there, there is a very heavily armed right, uh, very heavily. Uh, they're, 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 their politics are um, uh, white nationalists, and their strategy is to foment the race war. They don't think they can. Um, uh, win uh, just by force of arms or their numbers, but they want to do provocative things that provoke uh, civil conflict, and uh, then um, hope that their their hope is that the white population will wake up and then you know will will join in. Um, but these people can do an awful lot of damage. It doesn't take much uh, for um, you know, small groups of heavily armed people to to do um, to, to to foment chaos, the bad kind of chaos, not the good kind of chaos. Um, and all these things are possible. We can have just months of litigation, uh, just uh, armed conflict. Uh, there, there's now a uh, uh, some people on the left are taking. You know, learning how to shoot guns. Uh, there's a socialist rifle association uh, that's uh, grown up in the last year or two. Um, so yeah, the possibility of um, literal or figurative civil war is very great. Um, you know, the, the thing about the Trump uh, um, base is that they're a, a shrinking part of the population. They, these Christian fundamentalists, uh, white Protestants, a sort of smaller and smaller portion of the U.S. population. But that is what's driving them to these, this, this pitch of frenzy. Uh, they feel like, as they said in, uh, you know, in Charlottesville, uh, in that, that great Nazi rally in Charlottesville in 2017, we will not be replaced. They feel like they, they have this sense that uh, 
history is against them, demographics are against them, and uh, they are going to do everything they can to resist that, whether that's um, violence or, or you know, just um, uh, well, kind of alliance with the police, fascist political mobilizations. Um, it, it's frightening stuff. And uh, the, um, the combination of COVID and unemployment and uh, just a whole degree of uncertainty and anxiety, uh, the, 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 the pitch of of, of violent antagonism that, that Trump has, has uh, um, given rise to here. Um, it could get very ugly. Yeah, there's no question about it. I will say, you know, all my years of following Wall Street and studying the stock market, the um, one thing you get suspicious of is a consensus. When people reach of, you know, a common consensus, you figure, well, maybe that's wrong and maybe it's time to bet against the consensus. So that's the only thing that gives me pause is that everybody thinks this is going to happen. So God, you know, maybe it won't. But you know, it looks it looks pretty dark to me right now. Um, and um, regardless of the result, it could, uh, I, I don't know, I don't think, um, we're living in the midst of this imperial decline, as you say, and uh, it's just uh, a chaos. It's, we're not going to go down as gracefully as the British Empire did.